0: You're listening to TIP.
1: One of the most exciting parts of doing a podcast is when we have the opportunity to interview a guest that we're starstruck to have on the show. And today's guest definitely fits that description because he's the author of the national bestseller on Warren Buffett and numerous other books. The author's name, I'm sure many of the people in our audience know, is Roger Lowenstein. And in today's interview, we talked to Roger
2: about two different topics. The first is obviously Warren Buffett and what Roger learned from studying the best investor of all time. And the second topic is all about the Federal Reserve. Recently, Roger published a book called America's Bank, and it's a detailed outline of how and why the Federal Reserve was founded. So if you're ready, let's hop to it.
0: You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected.
1: All right. How's everyone doing out there? Preston Pish with you from Bel Air, Maryland, and Stig Brodersen from Seoul, South Korea. And uh, today, like we said in the introduction, we have Roger Lonestein with us, and we are so excited to have you here, Roger. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to be with us.
0: Uh, it's my pleasure to be here.
1: So Roger, you're the biggest authority that I found in writing about Buffett. And Stig and I have both read your book, Buffett, The Making of an American Capitalist. And I can personally say this is my favorite biography on Buffett. So I'm curious, just as a fan of your writing, talk to us about Warren Buffett. What got you so interested in him to write an entire book? And I mean, you really covered him in this book. What captivated your attention to do that?
0: You know, I had followed him since, it's hard to remember now, but late 70s, early 80s. We owned a little bit of his stock in the family and used to get his annual reports and read them with, you know, a whole lot of. Interest and frankly, admiration. And of course, we weren't ignorant of the fact that the stock seemed to be rising. You know, we'd have discussions around the the kitchen table. Gee, it's 200 bucks a share. Can it go higher? It's $400. Should we hang on? And of course, his wisdom was always that it's not the sticker price, it's the intrinsic value of the business and and, the per share value. And the number itself is just a number. In the Late 70s, then I got a job at the Wall Street Journal as a reporter, came out of school. And by the late 1980s, I was actually writing the "Herd in the Street column for the Wall Street Journal. And that's the column where they, at least in my day, um, you'd size up a stock, a trade of security every day, and get some analysts to tell you that it was either too expensive and advise your readers to sell it or that it was cheap and, and they ought to pile in and buy it. And it struck me that the interviews that I was getting... And the reasons from these analysts were so short-term, and they fell so far short of the wisdom and understanding of markets that I was getting each year in the annual reports from Buffett. And I thought, you know, he really had a story to tell to the American investing public. This was in the very early 90s. Buffett was not well-known then outside of Wall Street, but within Wall Street, he would certainly recognize it already the greatest probably investor of his generation. And then in nineteen ninety one, there was a scandal at a Wall Street firm, I guess we've heard that one or two times since, firm of Solomon Brothers. And John Goodfriend, who ran the firm, was a I guess a friend of Buffett's and, and Buffett had owned a little bit of the preferred stock in Solomon. Goodfriend called Buffett up, oh, you know, I'm stepping down. He Goodfriend hadn't handled the scandal well and wasn't implicated. So Buffett ends up running this Wall Street firm. There was a lot of headlines about, you know, Omaha boy goes to evil caverns of Wall Street. And suddenly I realized that this guy who I knew a lot about, at least you know something about, was very much in the news. So I thought that'd be a very good trigger to pitch a book and I did.
1: Wow. So I'm curious, you found him in the seventies, which is you know, that's kind of unheard of for people that are huge Buffett fans like myself, to find him so early in the career—was it just serendipity? What was it that you were able to find yeah, him? Yeah, so we
0: we were neighbors. I say we, you know, my folks and particularly my father. We were, we were neighbors of the guy named Jerry Orans, who uh, had gone to school with Buffett at Penn. And Jerry uh, used to tell my father he ought to invest with him, and you know, I think Dad would ask him well, what else, and Jerry would basically say, "You don't need anything else, just." <laughs> Just give it all to Warren. Dad also, he was a lawyer first part of his career and had a couple of interchanges with Buffett, actually on the on the other side of a deal and was trying to persuade his client that the business that Warren was selling was probably not a business he wanted to buy. But Warren's a very good salesman. He really got the soft sell down to a T and I, I think Dad came away wishing he'd been on the other side of the table with Warren. But <laughs> so there were a few points of contact
1: Wow. That is so cool. You're exactly right. He is such a soft seller. He's so delicate in the way that he makes the person feel like they have an option, but deep down inside, you know, he's totally leading them in the exact way that he wants them to go. It's hilarious.
0: Yeah. And by the way, I'd advise people with an idea to pitch to Warren, or maybe they want him to contribute to their golf charity or something. The soft sell doesn't work with him. These conversations where you make pleasantries for five minutes and then say, hey, Warren, I was thinking it'd be great to have you on the board. You know, he sees these things coming. It's like he can see around a corner. And um, <laughs> he's unique in the things he does are precisely the things he wants to do, not the things that other people recruit him to do. But no approach is going to work with him better than just a direct approach. Take 30 seconds if you get him on the phone and ask him if he'll do a favor. But trying to sweet talk him, sneak up on him, is not going to work. He's been there. As he says, he's always getting these calls where people say, uh, with my idea and your money, we can do wonders.
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, you know, a a master at the soft sell can probably smell a soft sell really quickly. Exactly.
2: (laughs) It's really interesting that you would say this, Roger, because it's a very good transition into my first question. Few people have been studying Warren Buffett as well as you have. What do you think is the most important thing that people don't know about him?
0: I think the hardest thing to get about Buffett and the hardest thing to get about value investing is there's no formula. Buffett and his friend Bill Ruane, I can't remember which of them said it, but they would quote it. You either get this in the first five minutes that's explained to you, or you never get it. There's no computer program that can tell you what the next six best stocks are. There's no, you know, dogs of the Dow or secret formula. It's... Part art, certainly part science, in that you're evaluating securities based on their reported numbers, but there's also an instinct, but it's an educated instinct it's the instinct based on years of appraising companies with made them with similar dynamics, but every company has its own dynamic and its own period in time so if you're looking at you know Uber, you might be looking at other companies that had network effects that were trying to disturb a settled industry like the taxicab industry, but you wouldn't find one exactly like Uber, and that existed before, and that's where the, you know, the art side of it comes in. Since you're ultimately making a decision, and this is where I really get to buff it, you're relying on your own judgment and not on what the stock market's doing every day. It's not about whether the stock has been going up or down. It's where you think the intrinsic value is going to be meaning the cash flow generating power in five and even 10 years. Buffett holds his investments for 10, 20 years. If you're holding for that time period, what they're saying on CNBC is irrelevant. What the Fed's going to do is uh, irrelevant. I just had this discussion with one of your competitors, so to speak, who said, well, don't you have to know what the Euro's going to do? Seriously. I said, you, you got to be kidding. If you'd bought Starbucks 20 years ago and you'd been right on the franc, it wouldn't have mattered. If you'd been wrong on the franc, it wouldn't have mattered. All that mattered was that you could see that there was a company that had been able to build a brand for premium coffee drinks. You know, what the exchange rate was going to do, what the Fed was going to do, whether it was going to be war in the Middle East. There probably been three of them since then. None of that mattered if you got the basic long-term decision about the company right. It takes a lot of, and I come back to Buffett again, a lot of self-confidence to ignore all that other stuff. And that's really his special quality. He's more able than any investor that I know of to say, I think this is going to work in the long term and everything else is shut to the side. You know, market forecasts, market trends, he's buying shares of businesses to hold.
1: So let me ask you this, since you I mean, you identified him very early on as somebody that you wanted to invest in, somebody that was worth watching, somebody that was worth writing about. If you had to make that call again today, of who the next Buffett-like business person in America or anywhere in the world, for that matter, who is that person? So, like, I think Jeff Bezos. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts as a person who
0: I think Jeff Bezos is the singular businessman of our era. You mean of of his generation? You know, I wouldn't say he's the Warren Buffett of this generation because he's not a capital allocator. There's no one business that. Warren does, I guess really the insurance business, you'd have to say, but even there he has people underwriting the policies. Warren's singular unmatched skill is allocating capital to companies and managers who do run business such as Jeff Bezos. I, I would say that Jeff is the John D. Rockefeller of his age, someone who has competed so relentlessly as to Rockefeller basically drove everyone else in his business either into merging with him or going out of business. I'm not saying that Bezos is an illegal monopolist, as you know, Rockefeller was convicted of, but he's clearly the greatest competitor and the hungriest competitor of the digital age. Can he pick stocks? I have no idea. And Buffett talks about circle of competence, and there are other things that Bezos does so well that he sticks within his circle of competences, which is you know electronic retailing. And spinoffs now, to, as we've seen, physical retailing to Whole Foods. In terms of you know the next Buffett, you know there are half a dozen investors I really, really, really respect. I think a Buffett is really a one-off. You know he's been doing this since 1956. That's 61 years. You know he's had top drawer results for 61 years. If you combine a Buffett's record with his endurance. With also his skill as a manager, running this conglomerate with 70 companies, with his larger role in the American business culture, he's really become the teacher of business and investing for his uh, student annual report readers and now listeners on the, all the shows he's interviewed on. He's created a role that never existed, and I think, you know, there's not going to be another one. And interesting, I saw sides of this way early in his career. Before you know, anyone had heard of Warren Buffett, when he was in a fraternity, actually when he transferred, to, maybe this was at Penn, the first school he went to, his fraternity brothers used to have him stand up against the wall, and then pepper him with questions, just because they liked to hear his answers. And then a few years later, when he was a young investor, he'd go to these dinner parties in New York, and they'd have a kind of a ritual: a bunch of young uh, brokers and investors, Bill Ravey was probably there, half a dozen others, and they would all gather uh, around his feet, all these other grown men, his peers, and listen to him talk and pepper him with questions again, because they wanted to hear him speak. It was an unconscious address rehearsal for the day, uh, decades later, when he'd be running this company, Berkshire Hathaway, with these annual meetings where 40,000 people would show up to hear him talk. When has there ever been a stock picker with 40,000 people flying across the country? I think he's sort of a one-off. we are not going to see it again.
1: Yeah, you might be right about that. I want to throw this out there there, Roger. If you ever wrote a book called Bezos, I would absolutely buy that.
0: You know, with the biography, at least be they're all, all the things I just said about Buffett, his self-confidence, the way he approaches stocks, his unique role in the American investing culture and so on, that hasn't changed, although it's certainly grown. Whereas with Jeff Bezos, I don't think the story can quite be written yet. Will he go down as the guy who ended the bookstore? Will he have his own you know, antitrust challenge? It's certainly not unthinkable, and you wouldn't want to miss that. After all, Bill Gates had one. Google's dealing with those types of threats, and the, there's certainly a very live issue about how society will deal with and regulate digital giants that, although they escape some of the traditional nets for antitrust and regulation, nonetheless are extremely powerful and getting more so economic entities. And At some point, these tremendous uh, business titans face what I would call their role in society moment. At least, you know, a great many of them do. And it wouldn't surprise me if there's some type of drama for Jeff Bezos ahead at some point, or uh, at very least, he'll he'll face decisions on what to do with his wealth. So right now, when both he and Amazon are still sort of a rocket ship pointed upward, yeah. So let me have to get a younger
2: biographer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hope you do write it something. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by
3: Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. And how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right,
2: back to the show. So, speaking about Business Titan, it's really hard to talk about Warren Buffett without mentioning Charlie Munger. And I'd say, based on my own experience, partly reading about him beforehand, but also experiencing Charlie Munger at the Berkshire Halloween meeting, he is just such a brilliant person. So I'm curious about your thoughts on this. Do you think that Charlie Munger has a huge impact on where Warren Buffett is today, or do you think Warren Buffett would probably be where he is today in his own right, regardless of the influence of Charlie Munger?
0: I would say more the latter, and that's not to depreciate Charlie at all. Charlie is—he's also a genius, a, a curmudgeonly genius, whereas Warren is, you know, a sunnier. You know, optimistic, you know, at times almost so optimistic about uh, America and so on. He's almost a cheerleading. Uh, Charlie, I'll never forget the time I uh, first met Charlie. I was reporting, you know, researching the Buffett biography. I was very excited. I was writing the people close to him. Most people did cooperate, but some didn't. And, and naturally, when I'd send a letter, I'd wait with bated breath. And Charlie said, yeah, come out. I'll see you at the California Club, which is where he hangs out in Los Angeles. So I flew out there and we sat down, and I had a primitive personal computer laptop with me. And I started to ask questions. And Charlie just starts to talk. I probably asked two questions, you know, in four hours. And he just kept talking about work, (laughs) just kept typing. And you'd think that there'd be no limit if you're trying to get all the dirt, not in in an unclean way, but just, you know, good, good stuff you can get on your subject. And here you've got the guy who, in a business sense, knows him best. You'd sit there for three days, but the the human mind doesn't work that way. After some spell of time, you just can't really take in anymore. You just you, know, you just got to walk around the block or something. So I remember it was it was about four hours had gone by, and I I said to Charlie, uh, "This has been great. I think it's about enough for the first day." And he just stood up, turned uh, you know ninety degrees towards the door, and walked out. <laughs> Not a word. You know? Not I enjoyed it. Not I didn't enjoy it. Not you know nothing. I mean, we you we. Know, It was more later, and I and I said to somebody, you know, did I say the wrong thing? Oh no, no, that's just Charlie. He doesn't he doesn't waste time on salutations. In terms of your question, you know, how responsible is he? I think Charlie has been, you know, a terrific sounding board for Warren. A because he's so 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 smart. He's so you know unconventional, or or at least unafraid of convention. There's no censor there. You know, there was one time the two of them were walking down the hallway and. They had this manager who was, the company he was running wasn't going well, and the guy came was always asking them questions, should I do this, should I do that? He was just a big bother for them, and, and they see this fellow coming toward him, and Charlie just blurts out, here comes trouble. You know, <laughs> 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 he, And his singular ability, Warren used to call him the abominable no man, so Charlie doesn't get stars in his eyes about companies. CEOs they might be investing with, or he doesn't fall for, he's hurt it all. You know, if he gave me a million dollars and said, use this to try to con Charlie Munger, I'd, I'd give you the money back. He just couldn't do it. And by the way, he doesn't get conned by Warren either. A lot of people find it hard to tell Warren, you yeah, know, you're really all wet on this one. Not Charlie. And that's invaluable. We see with a lot of politicians that they surround themselves by yes men. Yeah, And, you know, Warren surrounded himself by one guy. The guy he's the person he calls a no man. So I think that's been tremendously useful. It's made, it saved him from mistakes. I think it's made the work more fun for Warren to have this partner and alter ego. They see so many things alike and they have this professional and personal partnership for, for whatever those decades now. I don't think you know many of the ideas came from Charlie. So early in his career, Warren was still very much picking stocks the way his teacher, Benny Graham, picked them, which was basically looking for inexpensive securities, you know, holding them until they got up to their trading value, fair value, and then loading them. And Charlie urged Warren to go from, you know, I'd say, okay business at cheap prices to good business at reasonable price. You know, one of the first ones they did together was See's Candy. I think the figures in the book, so don't hold me to this, but it was something like $30, $35 million, something, a lot of money for Back then, yeah, Charlie certainly encouraged him to do that, and I think Warren would have gotten there anyway. In fact, he already, you know, when he was running Seas was the mid 70s, but in the late 60s, you know, Warren on his own was buying American Express, a terrific business, hit a a bump in the road. So, Charlie encouraged and probably hastened Warren's evolution to paying more than Ben Graham would have paid, but. I think had it not been for Charlie, you know, we'd still be having this conversation. Would the stock be 270K or 240? That stuff's hard to say, but I I think it's been a sort of a healthier, more pleasurable process for Warren. I've known, you know, maybe you've known people who've run businesses and they by themselves who haven't had someone at their level to bounce things off of. And that's a strain and they've suffered for it, maybe in ways that are intangible as, as much as tangible.
1: Roger, I just want to highlight to the audience why that nugget that Charlie Munger kind of added to Buffett's approach is so important. And it really comes down to the tax implications. So, when Buffett was able to buy good quality businesses at a decent price, opposed to just a severely discounted price that's a marginal type business, he was able to continue to hold the pick into perpetuity or as long as possible. And by doing that, he didn't pay any capital gains by having to sell it a few years later he was able to just continue to let it compound and compound. And so there's many people out there that believe that this approach has added significant value to Buffett's ability to compound at such a high rate is because yeah,
0: he was the, the tax aspect is important. I don't think it's the largest aspect. Actually, you know, if you have a business, let's say it earns a, you know, 8% a year on capital, which, you know, most people would say good, but you know, not great. But, if it's clocking away at that 8% year after year, and if, this is a big if, if it's the type of business that is growing so that each year, it can reinvest the earnings at 8% a year, and you do that over decades, the relative difference is enormous because what's not happening is you're not selling after three years, as you said, paying the tax, then the money's dead for 18 months or six months till you buy one for another three years. If you keep buying a succession of businesses, one or two of them is going to be a lemon, so instead of having eight percent, you know, you're going to have minus 14 every so often, or you're going to have to find a business that gives you one great shot, 20 percent, and then it can't take the money, and then you're just getting cash back, and you're going to have to hunt for that money. If you can keep the money at work, eight, nine, 10, 11 percent, year after year, over a span of time, the compounding effect is extraordinary. And you've avoided the real pitfall of most investors, which is the dead space time, the backtracking, because the next investment is not as good.
2: That's such a great point and something that we really try to talk about on the show, because time is just such a massive expense for us investors. You know, it's hard to sit on the sideline and not do anything. But continuing the discussion about Warren Buffett, it's such a long time since he wrote the first book. Is there anything you wish you included that you learned since? In terms of
0: how I would paint him then and now, really very little has changed, as I said. I did update the book with a new epilogue or or afterward or something, about 12 years after the book came out. I reissued it because his wife had died, remarried, so that turned out to be his first wife, but required him to fill in a piece of the puzzle that people had been very interested in, which was, of course, what he would do with his estate now that it wasn't going to Susie because Susie had passed away, and the plan had been that she would make those decisions. So now he had to make them, and of course he chose for the bulk of his estate the Gates Foundation and his plan of peeling off uh, stock you know, year by year into his foundation, the Gates Foundation. I thought that was a required an update, you know, more than whatever new company he's vested and acquired since then. There's certainly been plenty of them. Mm-hmm. So for that purpose, I updated the book, and that's been the only time.
1: Yeah, no, I th- I think that that's such an important story to tell, and such a profound story to tell about the impact that all this money is going to have for so many lives. I think it's just so profound. Let's go ahead and uh, talk a little bit more about your newest book out there, America's Bank. So I just recently finished this one, Roger. It was quite interesting I have read The Creature from Jekyll Island about the Fed, and it really kind of has a very pessimistic point of view. And I found that your book was much more balanced. It seemed like you paid more attention to just the pure facts of how the bank was set up and you're telling that story, which was kind of refreshing to hear. I guess I'm curious if you have the same opinion as many people have today, where they think that the Fed is in a very tricky situation. You know, some would call it a dire situation. Do you see that as being as dire as
0: everyone's saying? Well, first, I think it's remarkable that we're having virtually the same conversation about central banking today that we had, you know, in the period 100 years ago. You know, that was the, the focus of the book, and, and really the same conversation that we were having 180 years ago when Andrew Jackson was. You know, taking a hatchet to the second bank of the United States, the you know, the previous experiment, short lived experiment in the central banking. And the same discussion that fell the first bank of the United States, the one founded by Alexander Hamilton. This enormous suspicion of large banks, central banks, any connection between governmental banking authorities in Washington and large private banks in New York. These were demons in Andrew Jackson's day. They were demons when Woodrow Wilson and Paul Warburg and Carter Glass tried to set up what became the Federal Reserve, and they're demons for you know certainly the entire Tea Party section of the Republican Party and for many in the far left and the Democratic Party. And you know by the way, that's not the way it is in the rest of the world. In France or in Japan, Canada, any other country you can think of, the idea of having a central monetary institution to regulate the banks, set the interest rates unify the financial strength of the country, particularly in times of stress. You know, this is as basic as having a cohesive army instead of a bunch of random foot soldiers or having a centralized post office. But the federalist mistrust of centralized authority you know, is our birthright in this country, and it's a very strong force even today, which is why, for me, writing this book was a, a lot of fun. You know, in terms of whether you know, the Fed is at a tricky point today... You know, tell me the time when it hasn't seemed as if it's at a tricky point. I mean it's it is responsible for the monetary stability of the largest economy in the world. So what it does has great ramifications. Specifically today, gigantic balance sheet, of course, accumulated during the aftermath of the Great Recession. You know, four trillion dollars. That's a lot of balance sheet. And my own guess, by the way, is it's gonna be a little bumpier. I just don't think you can sell that (laughs) amount of bonds and not have there be some disquiet in markets? I mean, what does it mean to be when you're buying bonds, you're lending? And that's what they were doing in all the stimulus years. They were lending and therefore adding liquidity to the system. Well, when you're selling bonds, you're borrowing, you're creating demand. That generally drives up interest rates. Now, some of this they're going to do not by selling bonds, but just not by replacing the ones that they have on their balance sheet now, that will probably be less disruptive. But nonetheless, that means that markets won't be enjoying the periodic stimulus they've been getting. Because up till now, the Fed has been replacing bonds or bills that have been running off and now they're not.
1: You know, whenever I look through today's issue and kind of compare it to spots in time in the past. The thing that I think makes today so much different is that you have this polarization with this credit expansion that occurred. When you look at over at Europe, you look at Japan, you look at the US, now you're talking about how they're going to start offloading it and they're going to just basically let the shorter term bonds kind of just mature and that's kind of how they're going to offload it. But I don't know that we've seen something happen on such a global level. Would you agree with that? And I'm curious to hear
0: your thoughts on it. You know, in the 1920s, late 20s, and early 30s, the French, the British, and the Americans tried to coordinate central banking activities. They didn't do a very good job of it, but it's not as if international markets, that they weren't interconnected and affecting each other for many decades. To some extent, it's beneficial right now because there's still QE going on in some of the countries you mentioned. There's still stimulus. So as we withdraw stimulus, the fact that other countries are behind us that are worldwide sense, the you know, sedative effect by not having everybody rushing out the doors at the same time. But yes, I mean, they're interconnected and that makes things, I, I think you're asking, you know, harder to program and to predict and so on.
2: You know, I found it really interesting what you said about us perhaps discussing something we talked about a hundred years ago. And I think some of the issues that we are debating today might be dating back to the formation back in 1913. What's the most profound thing you found about the formation of the Fed?
0: One of them was just how avidly they debated the same things we debate today and the same styles. There were these populists who you know, didn't trust bankers. There were bankers who were aghast at the notion of putting anyone in government in charge of anything to do with the banking sector. There were Wall Street people who were convinced that the Fed was going to basically destroy the economy by being inherently inflationary. And by the way, the gold standard still existed when the Fed was created. On the other side, you know, there were people from the Southwest and agricultural sectors who were afraid that the built-in dynamics of the Fed were such they would be inherently disinflationary. And by the way, I think that they were much closer to the truth than the inflationistas.
1: Do you think that the reason that you called them the inflationistas, <laughs> would you say that they were wrong because there was a gold standard in place? And I know that we came off the gold standard for a brief period of time there in the 30s during the Great Depression, but we then went back on the gold standard and were on it for you know decades at that point. Do you think that that's why maybe the inflationistas were wrong about their opinion of the Fed?
0: They were wrong for a couple of reasons. One was that we were still in the gold standard, which had been so... Ultimately, you couldn't mint more Fed Reserve notes, even though they were different notes and the old National Bank had been serving as money. You couldn't print more of them. You know, then there was gold behind them in some ratio, and the amount of gold was limited. And then there was so much controversy over whether authority in the Fed would be housed in the branches to the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia and St. Louis and New York and so on, or in Washington that to get it through Congress, uh, many of these decisions were left vague, and the Fed was born with very uncertain lines of authority, so that when the time came that we really needed a dose of liquidity, and of course, during what became the Great Depression, there were cross lines and uncertain lines of authority, and there was no clear one organism or mechanism or actor responsible for getting the economy going again as obviously Ben Bernanke obviously in charge in two thousand and eight. So the gold standard was a terrible restraint and there was just a lines of authority check which hampered them from using the tools they did have.
2: Interesting. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low,
3: sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the funds prospectus at fundrisecom flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB.
2: All right,
1: back to the show. So this is one of our favorite questions to ask on the show because it's our chance to kind of Pick your brain even further, but after the interview's over. So, what's one of the best investing books or business books that you've ever read?
0: Really like John Kenneth Galbraith's *The Great Crash* about you know 1929. You know, you read it in a day and a half. It's a thin little book. It's terribly witty. You know, Galbraith is always um, wonderfully witty. You know, I just pick out a few that, in no particular order, *Once in Galconda* by John Brooks. Again, about uh, the twenties and thirties was a wonderful book. I'm going to stop there because I don't want to seem to be uh, even close to exhaustive because then, then I'd feel bad about leaving out some very good books. But that's, um, those are three I've always you know, really admired and enjoyed.
1: Those are fantastic. I can't, I can't wait to dig into the first one because I wasn't familiar with that. So uh, I'll be picking that up today.
0: The Great Crash. Oh
1: yeah, no, I haven't read it.
0: Yeah, no, he's a terrific writer.
1: Well, I want the audience to know. So the two books that we were talking about today that Roger wrote, Buffett, The Making of an American Capitalist. This is such an incredible book. This is one of Stig and I's favorite books out there. And then the second book is America's Bank. It's all about the formation of the Federal Reserve. Roger, if people want to learn more about you, where can they find you on the internet?
0: Well, a website, rogerloense.com. So real complicated. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. You can order any of the books there.
1: Fantastic. Roger, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to talk with us and uh, share your thoughts with our audience.
0: Professor, it was great talking. To you really enjoyed it.
1: All right. So at this point in the show, we're going to go ahead and play a question from our audience. And this question comes from Brandon Bradshaw. I've got a question for both of you. And I want to know if either of you think that cryptocurrencies will ever be a legitimate thing. I know things going on in Congress, trying to decide whether it's legit or not. I looked into it early in high school, thought about investing, should have. there's a bunch of other cryptocurrencies coming out, like Litecoin and Monero. What do you guys think about that and how it would work out in the world of finance? Thanks, guys. Oh, Brandon, 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 talking about cryptocurrencies on the Investor's Podcast. So uh, Stig just couldn't wait to play this one because he really wants to hear my (laughs) response on this. (laughs) He's over there smiling as I'm listening to the audio of your question. So this is my point of view. I think blockchain technology is going to be huge, huge, huge. I think that it's a total game changer. You know, we read the book, The Age of Cryptocurrency. I've read a couple other books about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and stuff like that. I'm completely convinced that this is going to be a game changing technology. The big question comes down to which one's going to emerge the winner. It's kind of like trying to predict you know, that Microsoft was going to be the next Microsoft before it happened. And that's really hard to do. The way it looks now, Bitcoin is definitely the winner at this point, as far as market capitalization, the number of trading. You don't really need to have a huge position in this stuff if it becomes real. And what I mean by becoming real is that it becomes, for Bitcoin, it'd become a real currency. It'd become a global currency. Do I think that could happen? Absolutely, I think it could happen. What do I think the probability of that happening is? I don't know. I really don't know. And I think that for anybody that would say that they think it's a 70% probability or a 30% probability, I think they're just completely fooling themselves into thinking that they actually know. I understand what they're trying to do. In my opinion, this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to fix the issue that is prevalent around every single country around the world, which is central banks are broke. They're printing money and they're diluting the value of currency all the time. And there's no incentive for them not to since no currency is pegged to some type of gold standard. And even when there was a gold standard, that never meant anything because they just adjusted the ratio of how much gold they held in their reserves. With cryptocurrencies, supposedly that will change and that will be fixed and it can't be adjusted. Whether that's true or not, you know, the future will tell us the truth on that one. But I really like cryptocurrencies. I like the uh, promise of what they could potentially do to change. And what they're really going to do is they're going to potentially create a peg to all the domestic currencies. So if I'm in America and the Federal Reserve wants to devalue the dollar a whole bunch to pay for wars or pay for whatever, and they print, 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 what I see happening is a cryptocurrency, whatever that might be in the future, will be the peg, the global peg. And if a country acts irresponsibly like that, the value of their currency will be diminished. The value of the cryptocurrency will continue to hold its peg. And that's going to be a huge advantage for countries that are very responsible with the way that they manage their domestic money supply. I don't see cryptocurrencies and domestic currencies being in a winner-takes-all kind of thing. I see these two existing coexisting together. I see cryptocurrencies existing as a world money supply, potentially. And I see the domestic currencies continuing to serve the role that they have. But those are some of my thoughts. I know there's a lot of people out there, especially in the value investing community, that might think that some of my comments are crazy. But I think it's something that people really, really need to pay attention to and try to understand if they know nothing about it.
2: I think cryptocurrencies will be, I don't know if I think it will be as big as present, but I think it will be a lot bigger than it is today. And it might sound crazy to some But it's also one of those, if you said before 1968, that we wouldn't be on a gold standard. like Wouldn't that also be crazy? Yeah, I I guess it would. I mean, we're getting used to one kind of standard, and that's also what we kind of expect of the future. I definitely see cryptocurrencies play a vital role. Like Preston, I don't know if it's going to be Bitcoin. I don't know if it's going to be Ether. I guess there's a good chance that if cryptocurrencies is going to be something big for the future, that cryptocurrency has not been invented yet but i really think that cryptocurrencies has a place here i just want to throw out some numbers out here the transaction costs of fees of payment and processing fees they are between 250 and 300 billion dollars a year cryptocurrencies could do a lot about that so i think i'm not talking about whether bitcoin is going to x thousand dollars that's that's really not my concern but i think that it will be a lot easier if we could have a digital currency that is almost cost-free to transfer and that everyone has access to and can use. And that's what we see now with cryptocurrencies, for instance, Bitcoin. And that's what we don't see with all currencies. I mean, even the US dollar, that's the biggest currency out there. And a lot of countries outside of the US are trading that still incur a ton of different processing fees. And you can mitigate a lot of that the standards, So I think just like once we had you know, only physical money and now we have you know, digital money, you know, whenever you go to an online bank, I think it makes sense to think that we will progress to some sort of digital currency one way or another. And I think there will be some sort of coexistence with the current system that we have. Whether or not cryptocurrencies will be huge, it's, I guess, too soon to tell. But I think we'll see some sort of digital way of transferring money easier. And I just want to point out something here that I found really interesting, currently living in South Korea. What I realized was that Bitcoin in particular, they're huge in South Korea, but they're actually also huge in the Philippines. So they have a lot of immigrant workers from the Philippines. In South Korea, they're sending money home. Actually, 20% of all the money that's sent from South Korea to the Philippines, that's in Bitcoin. So It makes a lot of sense if you're in the developing world where you might not have access to a bank account. If you do, you might not trust the system. It makes a lot of sense for you to hold something in cryptocurrencies. That's really been an eye-opener for me coming from Denmark. That's a country where you don't even have cash because you just pay with your phone, you pay with your card, you don't see cash at all. I think it talks a lot about how on a continent with billions of people, how you might see something like that in the future. Another thing would be something like China. You can only transfer $50,000 out of China a year if you're using the conventional system. What does that tell you about the market for cryptocurrencies? I know this sounds you know, sketchy, like, oh, why would you transfer so much? And why won't you go through the conventional system? Is it because you don't want the government to be involved? Well, there's actually a lot of practical reasons to this. If you live in China and your child is studying an Ivy League school in the US, you can't transfer enough money to pay the tuition fee. So there's a lot of practical issues having the conventional system that it's just not an issue with cryptocurrencies, and I think we can't avoid that being something they're progressing to. Whether or not the nation states will just have a very loose regulation, which I don't see happening at all, or we'll have the rise of cryptocurrencies. I guess I believe more in the in the latter.
1: I think, as like my final point on this is, you know, my opinions are somewhat worthless. I think what people need to do is they need to go out there and read for themselves. I think there's a lot of people out there that know nothing about this and they kind of hear a very short or small narrative on it and they immediately form an opinion. What I would tell you is start with no opinion on this. Go out and read a couple very good, well-researched books that are written by very qualified people, two of which I'll name that I think are very qualified people. One book is called The Age of Cryptocurrency, and then the second book that I've read is called Digital Gold. I think that both of those books are very good to give you just an appetizer of what all this is about. Then I think you got to go and do even more research about all the risks associated with how all this could fail and kind of really understand it. But for somebody to not know what this is or what this potentially could turn out to be in the next five to 10 years, I think you're missing something that could potentially be very huge. So Brendan, awesome question. We're really glad that you asked this. We really actually enjoy talking about this. I know Stig and I were talking over the summer and had a little bit of free time. This conversation came up quite a bit whenever we were not recording anything and just talking candidly. So for calling in and leaving this great question, we're going to give you a free subscription to our new intrinsic value course that we just created. This teaches you how to value stocks and how to look at individual stock picks and how to come up with a value and an IRR calculation of what you think the yield will be on that stock moving forward. We also wrap some of Joel Greenblatt's recommendations on how you can use options trading in conjunction with value investing. And we think that some of that stuff's really unique and valuable to the course as well. So we hope you enjoy that free course, Brandon. And for anybody else that wants to check out the course, go to TIP Academy on our website and you can find it there. So if anyone else wants to uh, get a question played on our show, like Brandon, and potentially get a free course, go to asktheinvestors.com and you can record your questions there.
2: So before we round off this show, we have a short announcement. Theinvestorspodcast.com will now be a financial news site. And several times a day, you will see news stories primarily about stock investing. And the best example I can give is that whenever we have guests on like X-Cinnamon that we had on a, a few episodes ago, Jesse Felder, Colin Roach. We have set up syndication deals with them, which means that whenever they're posting a blog post on their site, we'll be giving the permission to publish them on our site. We also have news stories for that specific day. And from time to time, we also discuss other asset classes than stock investing. We also have Jim Rickard's blog post when he discusses gold. As a new feature that we just implemented on our site, you can also track the stock market in Europe, Asia, and of course, the US directly from the front page on the All right guys that was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode on the Investor's Podcast. We'll see each other again next week.
1: Thanks for listening to TIP.
3: PRT, PRT,
2: PRT, 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 PRT,